The Mazda lineup of SUVs will provide safety, performance, and capability on your journey ahead. From the three-row Mazda CX-9 to the first-ever Mazda CX-50, our sales team is ready to guide you to the SUV for your lifestyle. Shop the Omaha Metro's exclusive Mazda dealers at Woodhouse Mazda in Bellevue or Woodhouse Place Mazda. Visit us online for your next Mazda SUV at woodhousemazda.com. Welcome to Winds Howling, a companion podcast to The Witcher TV show on Netflix. We'll be diving deep into each episode of the show and exploring the larger context of the story from the games and novels. I'm Brett. And I'm Abu. All right. Well, hey, long time no talk. How you been? It's been forever. It feels like it. It feels like it's been like 10 minutes. <laughs> so, you know, and it might be even less time from the people who watched the first episode and then listened to our first episode and then they watched the second episode and now you're here for episode two, four marks where we get Yennefer, Yennefer, Yennefer. Yes, an entire backstory to Yennefer. This episode, I was telling you before we started recording, of the ones we've seen so far, so you and I have seen the first five episodes as we're recording this, and of those five, I think this is my favorite, which is kind of amazing that so early on in the show, I've already found a favorite. Of course, you know, I have the right to change that if I want to, but so far, this episode, incredible. We get a background on Yennefer, Jaskier is introduced, and we learn much more about sort of the political political history of the continent that maybe you may not know if you're new to the TV show and new to The Witcher. So jam-packed episode. I can't wait to talk about it. Um, like we do every episode, let's start with a brief recap and refresher for those of you who may have watched this a while ago. And then we'll dive into our three key moments and really deep dive into some incredible moments from this episode that I can't wait to talk about. And then, of course, we'll wrap up with our big picture of final thoughts about the episode. Do you want to kick off our recap? Let's do it. The worst couple ever, young couple especially, stumble upon a young Yennefer in a barn. She is bent and hunched over, her face distorted, and hair unkempt. But even here, you can see her iconic purple eyes shine fierce. The couple bully Yennefer, and she accidentally portals where she meets Istrid. He warns her that she will come after her, and she does. Tessaia DeVries arrives at Yennefer's home, and after some quick haggling of a price, buys the girl and takes her away to the school of Eretuza. Meanwhile, Siri finds herself lost and alone after the fall of Sintra that we saw back in episode one. She meets a young boy who stops her from eating some poison berries, and instead they share a delicious meal of slow-cooked rat. Yum. They come across a refugee camp and Rat Boy disappears as Siri joins the refugees. She's taken in by a family and begins to realize that her beloved grandmother maybe wasn't so beloved after all. In a tavern at the edge of the world, our boy Yaskier sings a song to an ungrateful bunch of listeners. So ungrateful. Yeah, it was well, a good song. Yeah, he got, <laughs> he got some bread off the floor. He got some things they threw at him. He meets Geralt who was given a job to get rid of a devil that's been stealing local farmers' grain. To Geralt's chagrin, Yaskier tags along for the adventure. 
Back at Eratusa, Yennefer continues to struggle. While the other young sorceresses seem to be progressing, she can't seem to excel at anything. She finds solace in her secret meetings with Istrid, who she confides in. But it turns out both Istrid and Yennefer have been spying on each other for their respective schools. And we learn that Yennefer is actually part elf. She earns the respect of Tissaia and watches her fellow classmates who didn't pass the tests be turned into eels. More on that later. <laughs> yeah. The refugee camp where Siri has been staying is attacked by the Nilfgaardians, and Siri runs back into the forest. She finds Ratboy again, and we learn he's actually an elf, and his name is Dara. In Posada, Yaskir and Geralt are attacked by the Sylvan, a rare, goat-like creature who's been stealing grain for his elvish allies. The elves capture Geralt and Yaskir and intend to kill them. Instead, Geralt talks reason to the elves, and they let their hostages free. Yaskir sings a song about their adventure and ignores Geralt's desperate pleas to leave him alone, as the two friends-to-be journey onwards. As they toss a coin... To the Witcher. <laughs> <laughs> Valley of Plenty. Yep, Such a it, good song. Stuck in my head ever since I watched the episode. Yeah, and it, I watched it again earlier today, and it's been in my head. But we'll get there eventually. So right now, we head to segment two, three key moments. And the first key moment is the lightning in a bottle scene at Eratusa. So... The only thing about here that really sticks out, to me more than anything, and I actually tweeted about it, Tissaia, and the actress who plays Tissaia, and I didn't even look up the name of who it was at the time when I tweeted it. And I just said, she was amazing and just dominated every scene. Dominated. Yes, and the actress, Meanna Burring, actually tweeted back like, thank you so much for the kind words. And I was like, oh, damn, I didn't even know that she was on there. But she is... She is incredible and exactly what I imagined Tissaia would have been. Like, is this dead on perfect? Yeah. Honestly, my imagination didn't do Tissaia justice. Like, Miana Burring did amazing. Every scene that she's in, I'm just like, I'm a little bit scared, <laughs> you know? Like, as I should be. She's a powerful sorceress. She's the, the rectress, uh, rectress at Eratusa, and she's terrifying. And she just owns every scene that she's in. I agree. Just such an incredible job by this actor. And it goes to say that all of this is a show creation because none of this is in the books. We don't get, we get what Yen says, that she was a hunchback, that Tissaia trained her at Eratusa, but we never saw this. Mm -hmm. We only get what she said about what it was, how she was beaten and abused by her horrible, horrible father. Ugh. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Like, man, Fuck that was, that guy. yeah, oh, that was that opening scene. That opening scene is iconic. Like, I think let's, if we can just sidetrack for 30 seconds to talk about it, Tessaia comes up and she asks Yennefer's father, how much for a pig? Because he's, he's a pig farmer or whatever. He's got pigs. And her father says, 10 marks. Cool. And then Tessaia turns and says, how much for the girl? And her, to be fair to her father, he she actually six. says, she actually says, how much for that beast? Like, she's oh even, like, God. in a way belittling Yennefer also. She's like, yeah, for that beast there. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and her father says, six marks, less than the pig. Yeah. Now, at this point, I'm already like, oh, my God. But then what does to, what does Tasea do? She haggles. She haggles. <laughs> it says four. And then he she doesn't even four. rehaggle to five. No. He's like, oh, yeah, four. Get her the hell out of here. He's a bad haggler is what I'm saying. <laughs> That's how little he saw. It, I would say his daughter, but he's very clear to the wife. She's no daughter of mine. Yeah, that's Yennefer's backstory that we don't, we get hints at it in the books, but it, it's incredible to finally see it on screen. And this entire episode really fills in who Yennefer is. And I think it's important to do that, right? Because if you're new to the Witcher series, Yennefer is such a central character to both Geralt and the story at large, to both Geralt, Siri and the rest of the world. And to really see who she is, where she came from and what defines her is so important. And that's exactly what this episode achieves. It's it's wild. Um, Yennefer's backstory is not a pleasant one. That much is very clear from the very, very beginning. And this lightning in a bottle scene, I think, is where a lot of her development happens. Like after Tessaia buys her for less than what a pig is worth, she takes her to the school of Eratusa. She does her studies there. She has secret meetings with Istrid, as we mentioned. And this lightning in a bottle scene is where we finally see Yennefer come into her own, I think. Yeah, and we really get to see where her frustrations, her frustrations really kind of mount up. When she's teased at the beginning and she portals to Istrid, he says, well, you're a virgin, and she slaps him. And then it's just like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, she immediately cowers. and But it's that outburst. When she gets to Eratusa, she smashes the mirror. Mm-hmm. And then you see here, when she can't get, when she fails and she sees other sorceresses succeeding in catching lightning in a bottle, she literally lashes out. And according to Tessaia, she could have killed somebody with that anger. But at that time, she's like, well, it felt pretty powerful or in control. And Tessaia's like, no, you have to have to control with the power. And so we're seeing Yen emerge with kind of reclaiming not even reclaiming agency because she never had agency. She like never taking, had it, right? Yeah, she's taking her own uh, control of herself. Yeah, and a really subtle moment even before that lightning moment is when they're walking into that area in the Tower of the Gull where the girls will be doing this lightning exercise. And Tessaia just sort of offhandedly mentions that they're in the Tower of the Gull. It's the most powerful, most potent, magical place in the continent. And it's off limits to everyone except the Brotherhood, which is the school for the boys, for the sorcerers. So Eratusa is the school for the sorceresses, for the women studying magic. And then their counterpart is where Istrid is learning, and that's in Benard. And that, that is the school for the boys. And the, so, brotherhood, the Brotherhood is really all of them together. And that's kind of something that I don't know if it was clear. It's like the chapter of the gift and art was also called the Brotherhood of Sorcerers. And that's mm-hmm. the men and women. And we'll see in a future episode kind of everybody meeting. Yeah. But it's just these separate schools. They're separating basically, you know, there's a boys' school, school basically and like a girls' school. And so, but there's like this chapter of sorcerers, this brotherhood of sorcerers that right. are sort all of, Sort together. of like a council. Yeah, a council that are all together of men and women. Right. And Tessaia mentions offhandedly about the Tower of the Gull that only the Brotherhood, only this like chosen yeah. council, a select few, are allowed to access the Tower of the Gull. And Yennefer says, why? 
She doesn't get an answer. She doesn't get a response. She doesn't even really say it to anyone in particular, but she says why. And I thought that was really, that was like a really great performance and a really great line to have in there. This new Yennefer who's questioning things. Because later on, as we'll learn in future episodes, she leaves Eretuza behind. She leaves Tesea. And it, it, this is, I think, the first sort of seed that plants that. Like, the, her confidence comes through in this scene, and we see her start to question the status quo, to question her place in life, and to question why she should cower in front of people. And this is where it happens. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, and her gaining, and I don't want it to be, because a big thing, though, is the support she gets from Istrid, but I don't want it to be like, oh, yeah, this man is keeping her, you know, like, oh, she needs the support from the man to really, you know, get going in there. But as she stated in there, like, no one, to say it tells her, no one will ever love you. Right, that's <laughs> like, her greatest piglet. Oh, and she calls her Piglet, which, yeah, yeah uh, which kind of hits on again, well, we can talk about that later. A future term that maybe Yennefer has for someone she might be training is kind of similar to the way Tesea is treating her, but we'll get there. But also Piglet, because she's worth less than a pig. Like, it's and this, like, sort yeah. of jab. It's a reminder yeah. to her, that, like, this is what you're worth. Horrible. Tesea, tough but fair. I will say that. <laughs> tough, tough, that's for sure. And speaking of Tesea, she has this incredible line... Again, I watched this scene like line for line because I was just so enthralled. I think this lightning in a bottle scene is the best part of this episode. And there's a moment when all the all the young sorceresses line, uh, circle up and they're about to do this test. And Tesea says, okay, I've brought you all here because you're about to catch lightning from this storm happening in the bottle in your hands. And one of the young sorceresses is like, what? That's impossible. We can't do that. And Tesea's response is... That's not impossible. It's magic. Hello, it's like, magic. <laughs> like your sorceresses, there's magic here. Like theoretically, like nothing yeah, can be so impossible. Dope. <laughs> so dope. Yeah. That one line really embodies who Tessay is, you know? I feel like her entire life, Tessay has been like, it's not impossible. I can do it. Yeah. It's not impossible. It's magic. And she's really trying to instill some of that in her students. You have to respect that. She, she might be cruel. She might be terrifying, <laughs> but to say a total badass. Um, another key line from this scene that I want to point out that we'll touch on later is when Sabrina Glevesig, uh walks up and successfully, and l- it looks like very easily, captures the lightning in a bottle, and she's like, yep, yeah, I did it. And Tesea says something to the effect of, uh, Sabrina, show them how it's done. The, you're the strong amongst the weak. Like you, she's really putting Sabrina up on this pedestal. And uh, that that idea of like who is strong, who is weak, who deserves to be uh, sort of ascended and who just serves those people is like a central theme in this episode. Yeah, and it's the beginning of a rivalry because Sabrina and Yen will, they'll, they, they got a history. Well, they have a future here, <laughs> but Sabrina will be around as she you know, showcased here how good she is. But the big thing too is to say it talks about how Sabrina is so good because she has no emotion. Like she just yes. turns it off, doesn't have it. But one's like us. And she literally says mages like us saying that, Yen, Hey, I'm like you. 
we're consumed by them, by those emotions, and we need to control them. Otherwise, you might lash out and try to kill somebody like you just did, Yennefer. Like you just did, Yennefer, yeah. 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 And, And this is so telling, right? Up to this point, the only impression that the Watcher has of Tessaia is that she is this cold, calculated, just brutal, ruthless teacher who effectively recruits her students by taking them away from their families, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, the only impression we have of Tissaia right now is that she's this incredibly daunting, powerful figure in Yennefer's life and in the lives of the rest of the students at Eretuza. And this peels back the curtain a little bit. The fact that Tessaia stops Yennefer and she says, you and I are the same. We are controlled by our emotions and we have to learn to overcome that or else we don't belong here or else we can't become our full potential. That's incredible to think that at some point in her life, at some point in her past that we will never see, Tessaia was like Yennefer. And it makes it clear that Tessaia really sees herself in Yennefer she sees the potential that's there and she's trying to bring it out and to mold it into something great. Uh, and I think that that's a wonderful moment from the show. And I'm so glad we got that tiny, tiny bit of insight into who Tessaia may have been when she was younger. Um, let's move on to our second key moment from the show. And that's the discussion between Geralt and Philavandrel. I think we should set it up first, though, because we got to talk about Yaskir, right? We got it. This is his first introduction to the world. So yeah, Yaskier starts off saying, singing this tune that uh, basically ends with abortion, <laughs> and then someone throws something, basically tell him to abort himself. Is that what he said, or abort the song, or something? Yeah, something along those lines. Someone <laughs> tell him to abort himself, and I was just like, oh my god! And of course, he's like, oh fuck off! Da 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 da. Picks up the stuff they threw at him, which I guess was food, like bread and stuff. And then sees the brooding witcher in the corner. And it's where they meet, which again is new because in the books they were old friends by the time this came around. So this is their little origin story. So Geralt gets hired, goes out. They find the Sylvan. Is Dandelion just, or Dandelion, I keep calling Dandelion. God, Yaskier. Yeah, something to note in the English translation of the books, he, his name is changed to Dandelion instead of Yaskier, but the TV show commits to Jaskier and calls him that. So you might hear us accidentally flip back and forth between Jaskier and Dandelion, but we're talking about the same the same uh, lovable bard. Jaskier. Yeah, so they get out and they find Torque, the Sylvan, and of course Jaskier just like, oh, this will make a great song, and he gets popped in the head with one of these silver balls. <laughs> Geralt basically takes him down and pretty much spares him, doesn't kill him, says, hey, leave. Um of course, that's after he asked him if his mother fucked a goat. At yes. which point, oh at which point God, Torka so was like, Is your mother fuck a snowman? <laughs> so um, they have snowmen. They make snowmen in this world, too. So, hey, parallel. Yeah, and I, I kind of like the levity that we get from that, right? You mentioned this in our previous episode, in our last discussion, that the first episode is like pretty heavy and dark, but the short stories in the books are kind of funny. And we, we get to see that, at least in the first half of this adventure that Geralt and Yaskier have. Yeah, I think Geralt's mouth kind of breaks into maybe what might be a smile. Yeah. Or a yeah. laugh. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> so maybe maybe there'll be more of that to come. So they get knocked out by somebody. It ends up being an elf. And they're taken. And Yaskier and Geralt are held in this little cave or some 
kind of hide away. Yeah. And the elf Teruvial comes, taunts them. Another elf smashes Yaskier's loot. Geralt <laughs> breaks her nose. She got a little too close, a little too much shit talking there. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, Yaskier's also talking a lot of shit <laughs> at this point for somebody yeah. who's tied up. <laughs> Which, and that was, and that's, an, again, a, another thing from the books, uh, Yaskier just keeps talking all this shit, and Geralt's like, would you shut the hell up? Like, <laughs> in the books, he's like, they're going to kill us. Like, shut up. But yeah, Dan, uh, God damn, Yaskier just keeps just hawking all that noise. Uh, but then, yeah, Philavandral, the king of the elves, comes, and then we get, and throughout this entire episode, across all three of the storylines, we really get the mistreatment of non-humans, specifically mm-hmm. elves. And so we get here, we talk about the cleansing. Uh, Ishrid and Yen talk about the cleansing when he, he shows her all those skulls of the elves. And we get it with Siri. I don't know if they mentioned the cleansing with Siri, but we see the mistreatment by the halfling servant with them. And so a lot of this was showing the, uh, the racism of the humans or specifically the mistreatment of the elves. And it's a ton of exposition in there. And what I love to, again, from the storytelling standpoint, is uh, at one time Yaskir says to Geralt, oh, there I go again, just delivering exposition. And oh, it's so that, funny. Yeah, it's that very almost like the writers acknowledging like, hey, we got to get a lot of this shit out. We're yes. acknowledging how clunky it may be. But we got to get it out because we got a lot to do in eight episodes. So we get a lot of that here. Yeah, I really liked how. that. I'm I'm a fan of breaking the fourth wall like that every yeah. now and then. Uh, it can definitely be overdone and it can be done badly. But Yaskier handled it beautifully. Yeah, and again, it's something, again, in the very little writing I've done, it's hard. You have to do it. And it's hard to get that exposition out without it being clunky. And so for them just to kind of do that, it's kind of like a ha ha ha, right. almost like, like a little, little cheeky ri- nod to yeah, it. Yeah, like a sure. cheeky nod. There you go. And so Geralt and Philavandral's conversation is basically along the lines of, do you adapt and survive, or do you essentially live in the shadows and fight back? And obviously Geralt has adapted, and Philavandral and the elves are fighting back. But basically here, Philavandral is like, we're going to kill you two humans, and Geralt's very clear to say one human, as he is not a human, doesn't call himself a human at all. And so those two sides are basically what their conversation is about. Right. And I think something to note here is Yaskier's eyes are opened to some reality here as well. He believed earlier in the episode, he mentioned this to Geralt, that the elves left Dolblathana, which is the area that they're in right now, that they left willingly to go hide in their golden palaces in the mountains. That's the story the humans tell themselves. That's the popular version of history that is accepted. That's not the truth. And Jaskier learns that. He shows up. He's bound by these elves. These elves are angry at him for some reason. And he says something along the lines of like, oh, you're up here hiding in your golden castle, and Teruvial fucking punches Geralt, and she's like, yeah, do you like this cave that we're in? Do you like my golden (laughs) palace that we're in? Like, that is not the truth. The elves were, they were ran out of Dolblathana, they were forced out, and they've been hiding, desperate and hungry and dying off because of this human incursion, because the humans arrived on the continent. And you can learn a bit more about this in our Lord Party episodes that we've done about the Witcher. We talk about the history of the continent, but 
to very briefly oversummarize it, the humans arrived on the continent, the elves and dwarves and some of the original non-humans were already there. And because of human expansionist tendencies, they basically pushed all of the non-humans out and have taken over a majority of the continent for themselves. And the non-humans are second-class citizens in this world. And that's the truth. That's maybe not the history that Yaskier has learned or knows, but the truth is far different. And I think that's the core issue of Geralt's philosophy versus Philavandril's philosophy. Geralt accepts the situation the continent is in now. If the humans are going to take over, learn to survive with them. Philavandril is clinging to the old ways. He wants his territory back. He wants his autonomy back. He wants a, you know, I guess the ideal is a sovereign state for the elves that lives in harmony with humanity, but that's wishful thinking. Do you side with either of them? Do you side with Geralt or Philavandril more? I mean, Geralt's philosophy is basically adapt or die. Right. And Philavandril's philosophy is death before dishonor. And even though he says like, Philavandro says, like, do you think this is about pride? And which is funny to me because I think his Gwent, one of his Gwent lines is, pride is all we have left. <laughs> and so I thought that was, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I wonder if that's put in there. But yeah, Philavandro, uh, it's, if Philavandro sees it as, if I adapt, then I've given in to the humans and the humans have won and they're in a way rewarded for their massacres and their pogroms. Mm-hmm. And the cleansing and all that, like he talked about, the cleansing, he just buried mass graves. And so Geralt, again, looks at it being like, if it's about survival, then it is your pride showing. That if you just want to survive and you just want to take care of your people, then you need to adapt. And if that means swearing fealty to them and doing whatever, then do it. But Philavandril's also smart enough to understand the elves made treaties with the humans in the past. And the humans broke them time and time again. So why should they make any more treaties with the humans? Right. I, I find myself pretty sympathetic to Philavandrel. Yeah, even of course. His, I mean, his, of view, course. his views are much more, extre- uh, much more extremist than Geralt's. He does point out, if we were to come down from these mountains and agree to sort of assimilate with the humans and live with them, we would be treated like shit, you know? Like, the humans aren't about to, like, treat us fairly and give us rights. We're going to be second-class citizens in a world dominated by humanity. And from Philavandro's point of view, that's just no way to live. That's a tough choice, you know? And that, that Geralt's argument here is pick the lesser evil, which is an amazing callback. I was yeah. so glad they did that. <laughs> an amazing callback. Geralt is pleading with Philavandro. He's like, hey, learn to adapt like I have. I, you know, I, I've adapted so that I may live. I've learned to live with the humans so that I may live. And he says, choose the lesser evil. Choose the path where there's going to be less bloodshed. If all the elves decide to fight all the humans, there's going to be bloodshed on both sides. There's going to be wars. There's going to be villages burnt down, families uh, separated. It's choose the path where less people die. You know, pick the lesser evil. And I'm going to quote Geralt here. He says... No matter what you choose, you'll come out bloody and hating yourself, which is such insight into how he feels about the last episode, how he feels about what happened in Blaviken. Yeah, it shows where, he's, where his head is at. It's not a good place, but it's probably in a better place than where he's at here tied up in the cave. <laughs> yeah, he's still bloody here too, so he, poor guy can't catch a break. 
uh, it feels like both you and I are leaning a bit more towards Phil Evangel's philosophy, but I, I do want to defend Geralt's philosophy for a hot second. I think when it comes to surviving and adapting in a world where you feel like you have no influence, I can understand where Geralt's coming from. To him, and this may be sort of fatalistic and nihilistic, but he doesn't feel like he can change anything. There's no making the humans go away. There's no making the humans understand. There's no making the humans treating elves and dwarves and halflings and the rest of the non-human races as equals. So why not learn to adapt and find a place for yourself in human society like Geralt has? And I can, I can understand that. And I think Henry Cavill did a really, really good job of acting in this scene because I don't know if you read it this way, but I sort of heard a little bit of like pleading in Geralt's voice. Like he wants to be accepted like anyone else would. You know, he wants to find his place, but he's not human and he will never really truly have a place. Yeah, he's, in a way, you can say, looking for a place, despite being a wandering, essentially, bounty hunter. But he's trying to find his place, and I don't know, maybe you can look at it as him pleading with the elves in that vein, and it might be just reinforcing to himself what his beliefs are, and the fact that maybe he needs to do more of it. And if it goes back to his actions at Blaviken, maybe... You can look at a hint of regret in what happened mm-hmm. as he got ran out of town. And again, the butcher. Oh, that's right. Because Yaskier calls him the butcher of Blaviken and Geralt gives him a swift punch to the gut. <laughs> yes. Uh, the the Geralt-Yaskier relationship. Spot on. Spot on. So let's talk about the end of this scene with Geralt and Philavandrel. Because it's a little different from the books, right? In this story, Philavandrel his mindset is dramatically different at the end than it is in the books. In the books, like you said, he tells Geralt, I'll see you on the battlefield. That confirms to us that Philavandrel has not changed his mind, he's committing to his old ways, and he's committing to whatever this elvish revolution that he's trying to make happen, he's committing to it. He's going to see it through, he's going to die on the battlefield, he's not going to adapt, he's not going to be subservient to humans. That's his mindset in the books. In the TV show, I guess the assumption is that Phil Evangel changed his mind. But I think the reasoning they changed Phil Evangel was to make the elves more sympathetic. Because now, like you said, you're left and it's like, oh, Phil Evangel let him go. He listened to reason. He spared our hero. So whether or not he comes back, we're now more sympathetic to the elves. Like this whole episode was to be, if you're not sympathetic to the elves or like the non-humans after this episode, you're never going to be. And I think that's why they did it that way, is to really hit on. They're mistreated. Feel sorry for them. That's true. It fits the theme of the episode, and I think you've convinced me that this was a good change. My, my gut reaction was wrong. I got to spend less time on Reddit. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's a given. Why do you even need to say that? <laughs> I know, I know. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, but stick around. We'll be right back. Commander, I apologize for the interruption. You have an important incoming transmission. Lore Party hosts Abu Zafar and Leah Wiggins would like to let you know that they're jumping through the Omega-4 relay and returning to the world of Mass Effect. They're hoping you'll join them on the Normandy and be a part of the crew. Just look for the Mass Effect episodes in the main Lore Party feed. 
End of transmission. Returning you to your episode. All right, wait, let, let's talk about some eels. Yes, we got to talk about the eels. This is our final uh, key moment from this episode, the eel scene. Tell me your read on this. I need, to, I need to get the Brett hot take on the eels. So she says, Yen goes, I'm ready. And Tessa goes, wait for the knocks. And she's like, okay, good. So she goes back and she doesn't get a knock. But of course, she's Yen. So she goes and looks and sees what's going on. And Tessa is around this pool with three of the sorceresses who she then turns into eels <laughs> and then goes, you know, and of course, like super villain mode. She's like, Yen, come here. You know, you know she's watching. And then explains that the eels are a conduit. And it's like the earlier when they lift the stone, you kind of have to kill the flower. And it's sometimes the best thing a flower can do for us is die. And she didn't kill those uh, sorceresses. She took away their control, but they're still powerful. So in a way, they're serving a duty. And I thought this kind of paralleled with maybe eventually what they'll show like the Witcher school, the way Witcher kids are trained, where most of them die. Like they don't make it through, but some do make it through. The strongest ones essentially survive. And so here you're seeing like the sorceresses, they didn't make it, they're not good enough, but they're still going to serve a purpose. Right. That parallel with the Witcher school is something I hadn't considered. That I'm glad you brought that up. That is true. So like this is new. This isn't from the books at all, to be clear, right? Like, this is a TV show edition. And I, at first, again, just like with the Philovanderal change, my gut reaction, and I think I texted you this too at like three in the morning when I watched this episode, I was just like, what the fuck is that eel scene? What's happening with the eels? Like, what's the point of the scene? What's happening? But on, on subsequent rewatches of this episode, I get it. And I kind of love this scene now. It's so thematically consistent with the ideas presented in this episode. This idea that there are some people that are quote-unquote worthy and powerful and deserve to be on top and deserve that power and control. And then there are other people who simply serve. That's their entire purpose, is to just serve and help these people who are more worthy do their job better. And that's the eels. The eels are this, are this conduit to control the magic at Eratusa so that people who are more worthy, like Yennefer or Tissaia, who pass these tests, can be more powerful. It, it just fits perfectly with this theme of people who are in power and people who are subjugated. The humans and the elves. The sorceresses who pass the exams, the sorceresses who don't pass the exams. So it's this battle between w- what is true, what is right, what is wrong, who has power, who doesn't. Those are the themes in this episode. And I think this, this eel scene really plays into that. Yeah, and it hits on like the, the chaos versus control. And that's a big thing that Yen will be about is controlling that chaos. And what the eels, you can say the conduit, allows them to do is those people who become the eels serve that purpose of helping the Eratusa helping the magic and helping the Brotherhood as it's them who send advisors, send the magicians and sorcerers and sorceresses to advise kings. When they say control, you can look at it very pessimistically and be like, oh yeah, they're controlling them for their own gain. But if they're the good type, if you're like to say, or if you're someone like that, 
You're just controlling them because you need you need to stop war. You need to stop right. bloodshed. And so this plays into that of everyone serves this purpose to do that. Right. Like in some sense, this is the lesser evil, right? Like turn these people into yeah. eels so that we can stop future wars and bloodshed with our power and influence as mages in the realm. Okay, so let's wrap up today's episode, as we always do, with just our big picture final thoughts about episode two, Four Marks. What did you think? It was definitely, like, it was a lot slower than the first episode. Yeah. But it's one of those, I think it's, if it lands for people, then they'll really like it. It can be confusing. Um, I'll admit, when I first kind of watched these, it was late at night after yet another very long day. At times it was like, oh, wait, what? And especially going back and rewatching with subtitles, uh, that definitely helps. And again, the three timelines come into the here where if you don't know the background of Geralt, Siri, or Yen, you still might think at times of, is this going on at the same time? Because it makes sense. If you just go scene to scene, unless something tells you otherwise, it kind of just makes sense that it would be paralleled. But they're not even close here to being near each other. Right. Again, all of these scenes take place decades apart. And that might that maybe isn't clear. I think it's even less clear in this episode than it was in the first. Yeah, especially with Jens, who's completely you know separated there. But I mean, it, it was good. Uh, Jens, the background of Yen, getting her in there was fantastic. And I mean, her story only gets better from here. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think this was an important episode. Like I said at the top of top of the show. It was important for the viewer, especially for viewers who are new to The Witcher, to get this background on Yennefer, to understand who she is and where she comes from. And this episode succeeded, in my opinion, succeeded in every way in doing that. So this episode, I'm a huge fan of. There's My first watch of the episode was definitely a little tougher. I was confused, and I forgot who Istrid was at one point. And I was like, who's this random dude that she's talking to at school? Do we know who this guy is? And then I had to Google it. So it really took me a second rewatch. And again, watching with subtitles, which I agree with you, helps a ton. Like some of the name pronunciations are confusing. Some people talk really fast. So the subtitles helped a ton. But I have to give shouts to to Miana Burring. I hope I'm saying that right. And Anya Chalotra, I think is the pronunciation. But the, the actor that plays Yennefer did an incredible job just capturing that pain of Yennefer's early life. That scene where she punches that mirror and then looks down at the glass and you just know she's going to try to slit her wrists, like, so difficult to watch, so painful to watch, and Anya Talotra, like, really captures that. So it really shouts to the acting. I think we discussed in the previous episode that we felt Henry Cavill was a little bit stiff as Geralt. I think in this he even opened up a little bit. And I give a lot of credit to Jaskier for that. I think his back and forth with Jaskier really helps uh, Henry Cavill loosen up a little bit. Uh, and we get to see a bit more of the, uh, the, the funnier side of Geralt. Like the, the scene with the onion, where Jaskier's going on about like, uh, I don't know if that's onion, but Geralt, you smell like death and adventure and excitement and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and Geralt's response is like, no, nah, it's just onion. It's onion. <laughs> right. So w- I think we got to see Henry Cavill blossom a little bit too. And then uh, like the final thing I'll say is like, Yaskier's my boy. 
And that song is so good! <laughs> Willaboo, podcast or podcast, lesser, greater, middling, they're all the same. But we've completed our contract, and it's time to collect our reward. So please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you on the path. At the Croc, Vanessa's kids play basketball while she unwinds in yoga. And on the way home, they always share tips. That's why the Rodriguez family is famous around town for shooting hoops upside down. They can dunk from downward dog, score three-pointers from crow pose, and make hook shots in headstands. With so many activities, programs, and classes at the Croc, you never know what you'll get into. Join more than a gym when you click the link. The Croc. Get into it. At the Croc, Vanessa's kids play basketball while she unwinds in yoga. And on the way home, they always share tips. That's why the Rodriguez family is famous around town for shooting hoops upside down. They can dunk from downward dog, score three-pointers from crow pose, and make hook shots in headstands. With so many activities, programs, and classes at the Croc, you never know what you'll get into. Join more than a gym when you click the link. The Croc. Get into it.